Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Thursday, 30 September. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Katrina Blowers and Katrina in this episode, a briefing on vaccine mandates. Yeah, it's a hugely complex and confusing issue, um, which um, brings up a lot of emotion in people. So we thought we'd take a deep dive into this topic today. Yeah, the real question at the heart of it is, do they create more problems than they solve? There's a bunch of people who are jabbed and have been jabbed for a while, but they're angry about the mandate as well. There's a much bigger group who are wondering who's next. If construction now, what's the next industry after that? Yeah, it was at the heart of those protests in Melbourne last week. The vaccine mandate, that is today's briefing. Our first, today's headlines. Former PM Malcolm Turnbull will be going to the Glasgow Climate Conference while his successor's attendance is still up in the air. History is made by those who turn up. So if uh, Mr Morrison decides not to go to Glasgow... His absence will send a pretty strong message about his priorities. Yeah, Scott Morrison hasn't confirmed if he's going or not. This is the COP26 summit where all the major countries are expected to meet and announce new plans to cut emissions. Malcolm Turnbull's attending in his new role as the chairman of Andrew Forrest, Twiggy Forrest's Green Hydrogen Organisation. Yeah, the former PM also revealed he's spoken to the French president in the wake of the submarine deal saga, saying the government's handling of the deal has damaged Australia's reputation. I have spoken to Emmanuel Macron. He, he is a friend. This is an appalling episode in Australia's international affairs and the consequences of it will endure to our disadvantage for a very long time. Wow, can you imagine what it's like for Scott Morrison to have the former Prime Minister um, staying in touch with other world leaders, casting a massive shadow on your decisions. Oh my gosh. And then also turning up in a private jet to uh, a global conference that's going to be very awkward for you. Yeah, from a female's perspective, it's like the worst ex-girlfriend ever just <laughs> showing up at every party you go to. Uh, Scott Morrison says he hasn't been able to reach the French leader since Australia announced its plans to scrap a $90 billion submarine contract with France. Clearly has time for Malcolm Turnbull's calls though. And the Victorian Health Department's facing up to $95 million in fines over its handling of the hotel quarantine during the state's second wave last year. This has been a monumental failure by government administration, the biggest failure in government administration in this state's history. That's Victorian Opposition Health spokeswoman Georgie Crozier speaking there. WorkSafe, the Victorian Workplace Health and Safety Watchdog, has charged health with 17 breaches of health laws after an investigation into how COVID leaked out of two quarantine hotels last year. Yeah, and these outbreaks sparked the state's second wave, which led to more than 800 deaths. WorkSafe claims Victorian health authorities didn't staff the hotels with people properly trained in infection control. Well, we've been chatting a bit about Sunday's NRL Grand Final being in doubt in Brisbane because of the developing Delta situation in Queensland. Now there's a question mark over Saturday's rugby union test. So the Wallabies are meant to be playing their second game against the Argentinian Pumas, but eight of the Pumas players and staff, including the captain, crossed the Queensland border to go to Byron on Wednesday and now they might not be allowed back in time for Saturday's game on the Gold Coast. Yeah, so they were stopped by police when they were trying to get back into Queensland to return to their training base on the Gold Coast and they were refused entry and they had to stay last night in a Kingscliff Hotel, which is just over the border there. Um, It is really easy, Tom, to get from Queensland into New South Wales and you can do it by accident really easily. I almost did it the other day when I had to go 
and do a news story down on the border. However, to go to Byron for a day trip, that's wow. kind of a thing that you'd have to plan. And under the border bubble rules, it's not allowed. What were they thinking? Seriously, like there's so many restrictions on, on these players. You know, they would have had to go through hotel quarantine to come into the country to think that they can just cruise around and not get stuck when they're in Queensland. It's just ridiculous. You know what my conspiracy theory is that they, they don't want to face up to the Wallabies on Saturday because <laughs> we smashed them on the weekend. <laughs> yes, let's go with that. Hey, while we're on that, what is the latest with the, the outbreak in, in southeast Queensland and the risk of the NRL final having to be moved to Townsville? Yeah, so still all the NRL executives are saying it's a sure thing for Sunday that um, we're just going to keep an eye on the situation. We were filming at Townsville Stadium yesterday, which is the backup plan, and it doesn't look like any extra seating or anything is being done there. So you would think that this many days out, if it was going to be shifted, that there would be some movement up there at the stadium getting it ready, but so far nothing. And that's because, what, there was only one extra case yesterday? Yeah, that's right. And uh, we are hearing reports that a woman has tested positive after visiting Kyogle in New South Wales, but that will be officially announced this morning at the press conference. And Katrina, how long since you've looked at your passport? Oh, it's in a drawer gathering dust. I cry when I think about it. Well, you might want to check the expiration date because it's expected that there'll be a big rush on passport renewals once international borders open. DFAT is saying if you leave it too late, you might see delays like people in the US and the UK are experiencing where passport renewals have blown out to 10 to 18 weeks. So apparently 1.3 million Aussie passports have actually expired during the pandemic, probably including mine, Mm. while 600,000 citizens have delayed applying for their first passport due to travel restrictions. Yeah, I actually got a text message about this last week and it looked like one of those dodgy... Sort of scams. Pa- yeah, those scams. <laughs> and then just I got ignored the, it. Yeah, I just think I was like, oh, I'm not touching that. It's probably Craig Kelly or some scammer. And um, <laughs> Craig Kelly. Yeah, then I got it in my email. So I was like, legitimately, oh, that's right. My passport expires next year. So um, yeah, it's time to get onto it, I guess. What about this? A mm. Danish artist who was given $100,000 to create an artwork has pocketed the money and delivered blank canvases instead. The artist's name is Jens Harning, and he titled the two blank canvases take the money and run. Very funny joke. Um, He says he was making a point about the working conditions of artists. Well, thankfully, the gallery directors are seeing the funny side and they've decided to display the works, but they do want their money back by January. Good publicity, I suppose. (laughs) Very good. I like his stunt. In this briefing, we are looking into the vaccine mandate debate. So that's some of the action from the streets of Melbourne last week, which was a a very shocking example of the backlash that can result from forcing the vaccine onto an industry. Clearly, it was a, a small but very vocal part of Melbourne's construction industry that were outraged at being given a week's notice to get the jab or lose their job. So we're asking, should we be mandating vaccinations at all? What are the industries where it makes the most sense? And when it does stack up, how should it be done? To answer that question, we need to think about the problem we're actually trying to solve here. 
Across the board in Australia, the vaccine uptake's actually been really good. Uh, in New South Wales, which is leading the rollout, single doses are getting close to 90%, and vaccine hesitancy across Australia has actually been coming down over the last few months, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria, where the outbreaks have meant a greater risk of getting COVID. Hesitancy is now down to around 15% in all states, except for WA and Queensland, which are at 21 and 22%. So I guess really, Katrina, we're talking about working on this last 20 or 15% of people. Yeah, but already there is a growing list of companies and industries who just in the last month or so have mandated the jab. Unsurprisingly, I guess, vaccines are compulsory for aged care workers around the country, for school staff, childcare workers, police, truckies and health workers in some states, along with WA port workers. But plenty of other private companies like Telstra and Qantas have recently introduced a mandate for staff. News Corp has gotten in there too. They've become the first major media media company to introduce mandates for its staff who operate the Sydney printing presses. Yeah, and in most of those cases, those employers gave their staff at least a month's notice, in some cases three. But in the case of the Victorian construction industry, it was just a week that some of those Mm. employees got to get the jab. And unions say that along with the supply issue and a number of other factors that all culminated in that perfect storm, that short notice was a big part of the problem. So Ben Davis is the Victorian branch secretary of the AWU and Ben joins us on the briefing now. Ben, where do you think this mandate on Victorian construction workers went wrong? There's a couple of ways they went wrong. Um, They went wrong because they didn't give any notice at all. Like it was announced, I think, a week before it was due to commence. That was really problematic. I mean, if you look at healthcare workers and teachers and aged care workers, it was flagged for them months in advance, which in turn gave people the opportunity to go and make an appointment and at least get a jab or two, um, whereas in construction it sort of came out of left field with a very short timeline and it then coincided very quickly with the industry shutdown for two weeks. So it was a convergence of sort of terrible things happening. Don't get me wrong, I support public health orders, but that lack of notice and the short lead time was terrible, I thought. What's the general view amongst, you know, construction workers? You're there talking to people on the ground every day. What's the general view about vaccines? Because I guess now that that all of this has unfolded the way that it has, it makes it look as though this is a sector that has some hesitancy or some resistance. But is that in fact the case with the people you're speaking to on the ground? Yeah, Melbourne Uni did a study all about four weeks ago now, and it showed that Uh, vaccine hesitancy or um, anti-vaccine, and they're both two very different sort of groups of people, were at that point about 35% of the industry in Victoria. I think the numbers have since shifted. I think there's a number of people who, quite frankly, will go and get the jab to keep their job. They're going to be hating on everyone as a result because they really don't want to get it at this stage, but they'll do it. And the problem with the mandate is what it forced those who were vaccine hesitant to do was to make a call definitively. So they either then went and got a jab and weren't happy about it, or it turned them into the refusing to get the jab camp, which was some of the people we obviously saw rioting and protesting last week in Melbourne, and that was particularly ugly. So there is there is certainly a very a rump of people who are definitely anti-vaccine. There are a number of people who don't support a mandate, even if they themselves are jabbed, and I think that's a fairly large group. Um, and then there's Another group who probably are the majority who would say, well, we don't care, we've been jabbed, we want everyone to be jabbed, we want to be safe at work. So it really has cleaved the industry into three or four parts. So what's this done for morale amongst staff? 
I was completely blowing the industry up, of course. If you wanted to come up with a strategy to alienate an entire community, I'm not sure you could do it better than they did last week. Hmm. You know, first they rioted outside a union office, which is going to alienate a fair chunk of the union movement. They then protested on the Westgate Bridge, which for historical reasons is hallowed ground for the union movement. So there's the rest of the union movement alienated and a fair chunk of the community to boot when we saw the photos of people stuck in their cars for two hours unable to move. And then they went to the Shrine of Remembrance. Like, I can't think of a more tinnied place to try and protest, guaranteed to completely alienate the community, and then they back that up the next day by closing down a vaccination hub. Mm. Like, seriously, if you're going to pick a set of places to go to alienate everyone, they've got all the bets covered. What's next? A cathedral just to round it out so that absolutely everyone is incensed with them? But fortunately, the steam seems to have come out of that movement, fortunately, but the industry is cleaved. There are really angry members who are contacting all of the unions all the time. There's a bunch of people who who are who are jabbed and have been jabbed for a while, but they're angry about the mandate as well. There's a much bigger group who are wondering who's next. What's the next industry after that? It's a really tense and tetchy time as we try and work out what the reopening of the industry looks like next week. But I imagine this would have pitted mates against mates. How long do you reckon it's going to take for the industry to recover from this? It will take months and years. There will be friendships that are sundered uh, permanently as a result of this, I would have thought between workers and colleagues, between some employers and employees. There's a real stroppiness around the industry and quite understandably so, regrettably, however. But Mm. we'll all just try and get on with it and reopen the industry next week. Ben, you talked before about the impact of of a mandate and you said that for some people it, it moved them from hesitant to a no on the vaccine, but other people actually said, "Oh, well, I'll go and get it, which is the desired impact. In the whole, do you think it actually made the industry safer by mandating the vaccine? I think that remains to be seen when the industry reopens next week. There's two ways to make the industry safe. One is obviously to get the jab and the other is to enforce the public health orders. Obviously, a mandate will achieve the first, we assume, assuming that it's policed out in the industry, and I think it will be. But if you know that rules aren't being followed, those rules then in turn need to be enforced. And that's that's the problem, that I think, that got us to where we are now. That's Ben Davis from the Victorian branch of the Australian Workers' Union. Um, let's broaden out from that industry and ask how and when mandates should be introduced across the board. So Hugh DeCretza is the Executive Director at the Human Rights Law Centre. Hugh, thanks for joining us on the briefing. Do you agree with the construction unions that the Victorian government made big mistakes in the introduction of that vaccine mandate? From a human rights perspective, employers and governments, when they're looking at vaccine mandates, need to tread very carefully. Uh, We think that workplace mandates are certainly justified in high-risk areas like aged care, health care, disability services and quarantine services, for example. But outside of that, uh, we think employers and governments must tread very carefully and they need to exhaust all reasonable measures before introducing workplace mandates. So could it potentially be a violation of your individual human rights? There is a right not to have uh, medical treatment imposed on you without your consent. What we're talking about here is not obviously forced treatment in terms of use of force, rather it's the use of penalties and disincentives and the very real threat of losing your livelihood if you don't agree to be vaccinated. So uh, quite a serious measure from government. The question from a human rights law perspective is, 
is that reasonable and justified in the circumstances? And I know the Victorian government pointed to uh, high rates of non-compliance in the construction industry and, and lower than average rates of vaccination. That's what they would say their justification for this workplace mandate is. If a court was looking at it, they would look at all of those circumstances and weigh up whether or not this was a reasonable limit on that human right uh, not to have medical treatment without consent. Some people who've launched legal action have said that they're going to be arguing on a constitutional basis. Is there any real argument there that's going to work? Because I heard one legal opinion saying that that would have no chance of getting up. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to see how that would be successful. The stronger basis on which people would challenge it would be on looking at things like, uh, are these uh, public health orders compatible with human rights in those uh, states or territories that have a charter of human rights? Right. Is this directive from an employer lawful and reasonable? So employers, if they're in an industry that's covered by a public health order, which says you need your staff to be mandated in aged care, for example, employer will have protection there. Um, outside of that, I mean, we're seeing a range of employers, universities, uh, Qantas and the like, SPC, who are saying we are going to impose workplace mandates. They're not protected by a, uh, a sector-wide order. In those circumstances, the employers uh, must ensure that directions to employees are lawful and reasonable. And it's really important that they look at exemptions to this. There will be a very small number of people who will have genuine health reasons as to why they can't have the vaccine. There needs to be alternatives explored around if someone um, says, I don't want the vaccine or I don't want it yet, is it possible for them to work from home, uh, work remotely? Is it possible for the employer to protect safety in the workplace or safety for, for customers and, uh, and the like by, for example, having a, a testing regime or a masking regime for those employees who don't want to get vaccinated or don't want to get vaccinated yet? In general, outside of those high-risk areas like aged care and healthcare and disability services, we should be exhausting all reasonable voluntary measures. We should be making sure mm -hmm. people can get the vaccine, that it's really readily accessible, that materials are translated into community languages, for people with a disability, that they're in easy English, that there's support for people who are hesitant to get the best available information. We should be doing all of those things first before looking at compulsory measures uh, and disincentives and, and potentially threatening people with job loss if they don't get vaccinated. Hugh DeCresta there from the Human Rights Law Centre. And interesting to think about these cases that might be happening in our courts, Katrina, because it's yeah. a bit of a mixed bag across Australia. Hugh sort of intimated that. But to clarify, we've signed up to these international treaties, which includes the right not to have medical treatment forced on you. But it's only Victoria, the ACT and Queensland that have human rights charters, which means yeah. those treaties are enforceable by law. So it depends which state you'll be taking your legal action in as to the potential outcome. That's right. And it still has yet to be tested in some of those states. So I think, you know, it's going to be interesting times ahead as we see whether, in fact, employers have got a leg to stand on here. All right. Tomorrow on The Briefing, what it's like being a vaxxer in Byron Bay, not an anti-vaxxer, a vaxxer. Listener.